Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here. Make sure we're on here. There we go. Great to see you all here. Uh, We are going to be continuing this morning, and really, we've got a couple weeks left in this series, but continuing our series called Getting Clarity in an Unclear World as we look at the book of James together. Like I said, we have two weeks left. Next week, we'll actually end this series. And so we're looking at the last chapter in the book of James. Uh, we're going to be talking about how James wraps this book up. And like many letters, like, like James wrote this letter, we would expect that, of course, um, the last words of this letter kind of help to tie things together, but are also some of the most important words that James says in the entire book. In other words, he's trying to get us to really, he's trying to leave us with a certain impression. And in these last two Sundays, as we look at this, uh, at James chapter 5, we're going to see some things that are highlighted that begin to bring to the surface really the important points of what he's trying to get across and really what the point of the book of James is in general. We're going to begin that this week. We look next week, we're going to close with talking about prayer. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that I'm convinced is one of the most difficult things to actually live out and that is patience. James is going to talk about patience this morning, and I say that because I think we all want to be patient. We all realize that patience is a good thing. We see it in scripture. We've heard phrases like patience is a virtue and all those kinds of things, but we all know that that actually living out patience and cultivating patience is a very difficult thing. In fact, I know that for some of my friends, they have actually told me, never pray for patience for me. Right? Maybe you have friends that have, maybe you've said that to friends or you've had friends who have said the same thing to uh, to you because they intuitively know that when you pray for patience, God may bring trials and difficulties in your life to kind of cultivate patience because that's many times how God forms patience in us. It makes us nervous when we think about what it means to pray for patience and what it might mean for patience to be cultivated in our lives. And I think one of the most difficult things about patience itself is actually the waiting part of it, right? Waiting. It seems so simple just to wait, uh, just to wait and to allow things to happen, but at the same time, waiting is really difficult to do. As Tom Petty, of course, once said, the waiting is the hardest part, and I think in a lot of ways it is. Uh, We live in a world where um, having to wait is like a sin in our culture. I mean, we, we, uh, we want something and we want it yesterday. Amazon one-day delivery is getting too slow for us now, right? We want it in a few hours. We don't want to wait until tomorrow to get that thing. But think about that. The fact that you can actually pull out your phone and put your finger on a virtual button on a screen and you can literally order anything that your heart desires, whether it's a wrench or a toilet seat or anything in between, that thing will show up on your doorstep the very next day. And still, that's too long for us to wait. There's a, and there's a little more to patience, I guess, than just waiting. Uh, of course, we've all heard the phrase, patience is a virtue. Did you know that that actually came from a poem in the 1500s? And so for the last 500 years, everybody, I think, knows that phrase, patience is a virtue. And I think it's commonly been accepted in our culture that, you know, patience is actually a virtue. But we've gotten to a place now, I think, where waiting has become such a sin that patience isn't actually considered much of a virtue anymore for some folks. I was doing some research online and I found some of these uh, quotes online. This first one comes from a guy by the name of Alan Chadwick who says just simply patience is not a virtue. Alan Chadwick, uh, if you don't know who he is, he's known as the father of organic gardening. So he's a master gardener. I think it's kind of ironic that a guy who's a gardener thinks that patience is not a virtue. We're going to get to that in the analogy that we look at from James chapter 5 today. Of course, the next slide here, show that next quote. Patience is not a virtue, it's just a waste of time. 
Maybe you feel that way. I don't know. I got to tell you, this third one is really how I feel. This is how I feel. Let's take a look at this third one there. Patience is a virtue except when I'm the one that has to wait. That is totally, that is totally me. And honestly, I really relate with that one because I know, again, that patience is good, but I hate the waiting part. Speaking about Amazon, I've had Amazon Prime since they invented the thing. Right? I felt like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for Amazon Prime just so, and that was when it was like three days, so it cut off one day of delivery time, but it was still worth it. That subscription fee was still worth it to me just to get that extra day out of the way. And I think if there's one thing that, I was thinking about this the other day, if there's one thing that the shutdowns of all this past year have, 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 have created in terms of a blessing for me, I realize that I, it's almost been two years since I've waited in line at an amusement park. So for me, that's, that's kind of a victory. That's how much I can't stand waiting. And I know part of, the, part of this is the world that I grew up in. It was mostly kind of a digital microwave world. And I look at the generation that's coming behind us, like my kids, and it's even worse for them, right? As far as waiting goes, we uh, took a trip to California, a road trip last week to California, out to Big Bear Lake, which is about a six-hour drive, a little over six-hour drive. And as soon as we get in the car, my son always asks us, how long is this going to take? How long are we going to be in the car? So we told him it's six hours and some minutes or whatever. And he even has an iPad where he puts it down to the minute, his timer on his iPad, so he can know exactly when it is that we're going to arrive. And even then, we weren't out of Phoenix before he was asking if we were there yet. He had a timer on his iPad that told him that we still had six hours to go. And, and he has a concept of time. He knows what six hours is compared to 45 minutes on the 101, right? But at the same time, it's just ingrained in him to not wait, to not be patient. And so I think it's counterintuitive for us and countercultural to embrace waiting, all of which makes it really difficult for those of us that are Christians, knowing that we have been actually called to wait. We've been called to embrace the calling of what it means to wait, to actually lean into it, to be patient. And despite the fact that our world seems bent on eliminating waiting and eliminating patience as a virtue, when we look at Scripture, we find that God calls us to wait. And many times, there are many times we can look at and see throughout Scripture that there are times and periods of waiting that he has called his people to be a part of. In fact, all of the major characters in Scripture what we find is that at some point they had a very significant time of waiting where their patience and their faithfulness was stretched. Think about Abraham, Moses, David, Noah, Job, Paul, even Jesus. All had times, and some of them multiple times, where they had to wait on God. So as we continue in James chapter 5, the first phrase that we get into in this section, starting in verse 7, where we're going to begin this morning, is this phrase, be patient. And that phrase is actually a command. It's a command given to us with the understanding that patience is a good and necessary thing for a Christian. And from there, we're then going to get James's instruction on what it looks like to be patient and ultimately what it looks like to actually cultivate patience in our lives as well. So let's begin here in James chapter 5, verse 7. And James says this from the ESV translation, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So what does patience look like? What does biblical patience look like? Is it merely just putting off the good stuff as long as you can? I think biblical patience, as we see maybe from this place and others in Scripture, is that it's a little more than that. According to the Bible, and this metaphor that James provides here in James chapter 5 is key to helping us understand what biblical patience actually looks like. You know, as James has done throughout the book here, when he's trying to introduce to us a very important and maybe nuanced theological concept, he uses either a word picture or a metaphor. And in this case, he uses the metaphor of a farmer. And in this farming metaphor, which was something that would have been very familiar to a first century agrarian culture, he presents us as the people who are the farmer. Drops us right into the situation where the farmer is actually in the period of waiting during the farming process. So we can read into this a little bit and realize that a couple things at least have happened before we drop into this piece of the farming process. First of all, the farmer has prepared the soil, he's tilled the soil, And he's actually planted seeds as well, and now he is waiting for the crop to arise. He's waiting for what uh, James calls here the the fruit, right? This this, uh, precious fruit that comes up. And of course, the point of this whole thing, the point of being a farmer, the point of farming in the first place is the crop, right? That's why you farm. You farm for the crop. And so then James tells us that in the midst of this, this precious fruit is identified in verse 7 as an anticipation of something that is coming, but the fruit itself is the Lord himself. Look in verse, in verse 7. See how the farmer waits until the coming of the Lord. And in verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So what James is saying is the farmer is there waiting, and he's waiting and he's patient. He's waiting for the rains to come so that the crop would grow up, and the crop itself is Jesus and his kingdom, right? It is the coming and the arrival of the Lord. You see this as, it's a, as a second coming, obviously. It's a reference to the future reality of what Jesus has promised he will bring back in the second coming. And so really, as this turns on this issue, on this place, James focuses us on, no matter what we're facing, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're waiting for, the ultimate prize that is at the end, this precious fruit that we all wait for. Now, you see this impact right away. As James says, this should impact our lives because, look, in light of what is coming, it should have an effect on our lives right now as we wait and how we wait and the condition or the quality of how we are patient. James tells us immediately, as a result of waiting on the Lord with the promise that it will come. Because here's, here's one thing about the farmer. The, as James presents this to us, the farmer is waiting not for something that might happen or something that he's hopeful for might, might happen, but something that he knows will happen. The only question is when exactly will it take place? And so in light of that, James encourages us to do this, to stop grumbling. Because the judge who is Jesus is at the door, which is another way of saying that Jesus is right there. At any moment, the second coming could take place. But the judge, he presents the judge right at the door, almost, and you get this vision of almost uh, Jesus, you can see Jesus is the shadow of Jesus' feet underneath the doorway. And it's just a question of whether or not and when he is going to open the door. 
And he uses this reference to give us a sense of the imminence of the judge who is there, which does a couple of things at least for us as readers. James is trying to encourage us by this thing in particular. By helping us realize that Jesus as judge presents to us two things, hope and a challenge. First, he wants to give us hope. The farmer in this analogy is waiting for something. Of course, he's not just waiting for anything, but the most important thing. The reason why the farmer exists, the crop, which is the hope of the Christian faith as well. It is the whole point of it all, that the Lord would come back to us and bring the fullness of his kingdom to his creation. It is the substance of our hope as Christians. It's the point of our salvation. It's the crux of our existence. It's everything. This precious hope, the fruit that we wait for in anticipation. With that in mind, then the encouragement comes in the form that the suffering that we experience while we wait, the difficulties that we experience in this world while we wait, does not last forever. There is hope that is coming, and it's hope in the form of judgment. Now, I don't know if we always think about judgment immediately as a positive thing, right? But in reality, when we look at this, what James is presenting us to is a Jesus who brings righteous judgment. It's a positive thing, and it's a great thing, and it's a joyful thing for the Christian. Because for those who know the judge, those whom the judge has saved, he will declare righteous when he returns as judge. And also when Jesus comes again as judge, something else happens. He will judge sin and evil once and for all and remove it from his creation so that the world we live in will be completely liberated and free from the bondage of sin and evil. It's another win for us. And it's a win-win situation when the judge returns for those whom he has declared righteous in him. Proverbs 21.15 captures this well. It says, When justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So Jesus as judge gives us hope, but as James points out also, Jesus as judge challenges us in light of the fact that the Lord is coming. If the righteous king and the righteous judge is coming, then we ought to consider the fact that it's his judgment that matters in the end. It's a way of saying that as much as we want to judge our situation, judge our world, judge our other people, judge other people, we need to realize that there is a more perfect, greater, and wise judge. Which is exa- and this fact, when we realize it, should humble us, which is exactly where James has been going with this whole letter. Remember, earlier James says, let a man show you that he is wise by his acts of humility. Patience itself is rooted in an attitude and a perspective of humility. Here's what I mean by that. Look a little closer at verse 9. It's interesting to see that when James presents this idea of patience, he, pro- he provides the, the opposite of patience as well, and he says that the opposite of patience is not merely impatience or anxiousness in some general way. It's actually judgment. That word, uh, th- this verse 9, uh, that's phrased grumbling, uh, also also carries with it this idea of us judging one another, judging our circumstances, and actually sitting in the judgment seat of Jesus. In verse 9 it says, grumbling, but it reminds us of Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, judge not that you not be judged. And then in verse 12 where it talks about swearing or making an oath, it's clear that the improper judgment is in view. In other words, that when we elevate ourselves to the place of the judgment seat of Jesus, this is exactly what uh, James says is the opposite of patience and humility. So according to verse 9, a significant part of patience is seen with our speech. Remember, James has already told us previously in this letter 
to be, to be quick to listen and to be slow to speak, which is patience in our speech. And as difficult, I think as difficult and as rare as it is to see people acting out of patience in our world, it's even more rare, I think, to see people actually exercise patience in their speech. And James paints a picture of what impatient speech looks like. It displays a person who is quick to judge, which makes sense because if patient speech is the kind of speech that is quick to listen and slow to speak, impatient speech would be that that is quick to speak and slow to listen. And people who are quick to speak generally are people who have made judgments already. They don't believe they need to listen because they've already made their mind up about a person or a situation or an idea. And then they often speak as judge, jury, and executioner. I'm sure we've all experienced times where we've made a judgment and we've rendered a situation as one way or or rendered a judgment on somebody in one way that was short-sighted and we realized that it was a wrong judgment. For instance, maybe we make a snap judgment on somebody the first time we meet them and we realize that as we get to know them a little bit more, we realize that we were totally wrong about them. Anybody ever done that before? I'm sure I'm probably the only one who has done that. We judge a situation, maybe without knowing all the facts or all the perspectives, we jump to a conclusion about it and we realize that after we find out more facts about it or after we hear it from a different perspective, we realize that we made an incomplete and wrong judgment about it. Maybe we judge from our passions, a reaction of anger or a reaction of pride or a reaction of selfishness and that renders a judgment in that place that is misguided. I mean, we do it all the time. It happens all the time. And sometimes it's a little embarrassing. Sometimes we have to eat crow over it, eat a little crow over it. You know, this past week, of course, we're in the middle of March Madness. And uh, I don't know if you guys have been watching the basketball games, but on Friday, had an opportunity to have some friends over to watch a few of the games. And uh, one of my friends, you you may know him, I think most of you may know him, is a big Ohio State fan. He's a fan of the Ohio State University basketball team. Now, If you're paying attention, you may know that Ohio State is a two-seed in the tournament, which is a really good thing. When you're a two-seed, you're projected to go pretty far into the tournament. You're supposed to be a really good team. And one of the great things about being a two-seed is you get to play a 15-seed. And in this case, the Ohio State University got to play Oral Roberts University, which was the 15-seed in their bracket, right? And of course, you would assume, I don't know how many points they were favored by, 20, 30, whatever it was, but you would assume that Ohio State's going to win this game, right? And so did my friend. And so um, he comes in that morning and says to us, uh, I have brought you guys cupcakes in honor of Oral Roberts. And in case you think I'm, this is the box, actually, that he left at my house afterwards. It says cupcakes on it. It was full of cupcakes at the time. My kids have since eaten all the cupcakes in the box. But that was the box right there. And he said, in, order of, in honor of Oral Roberts, I've brought this box of cupcakes for you all to enjoy. Now, in case you're not up to speed on like, uh, on like trash talking and basketball, cupcake just means somebody who essentially, the formula of this is like somebody who you pay in order to beat them so that you know you're going to beat them so badly so that you can get a victory on your, on your resume. In other words, they are somebody that you were supposed to just completely, uh, completely destroy. And um, as you may know, Oral Roberts beat the Ohio State University in that game in the first round. 15 over a two seed. Doesn't happen very often, but it was fun to see it happen on Friday. (laughs) And here's the thing. That's kind of a lighthearted way of, of, uh, of, of showing how our short sighted judgment at times, like I'm sure if my friend was a was an all-knowing, omniscient fellow. He probably wouldn't have brought those cupcakes and wouldn't have said what he said because he would have known Ohio State was going to lose. He probably wouldn't have picked them to win the national championship either. But he, 
But of course, the judgment that came was short-sighted. And he was confident, obviously, about his judgment as well. And look, that's just a little leading crow over, over a judgment, over a situation. But sometimes our judgment, the damage of our judgment goes beyond embarrassment and merely eating crow. Our snap judgment may even damage someone's life, their livelihood, their reputation. We impact others by inevitably telling them what our judgments are, even though they may or may not be correct. Because one thing that we love more about rendering judgment is telling everybody about the judgment and the punishment that we've rendered on this situation or this person. Now look, we are called, ultimately of course, to make judgment between good and bad, between true and false, between righteousness and unrighteousness. But at the same time, what this is talking about essentially and what we are being warned against is placing ourselves again in the judgment seat of God where he is the only perfect judge. He is the one who is omniscient. He is the one who knows all and he is the one who is perfectly just in his judgments. And so where James has just said in chapter four, there is one lawgiver and judge, this adds impetus to the fact that we need to be careful about making snap judgments. And the, and the, and the contrast between our judgments and Jesus, who is judge, brings us back to this full picture of understanding this in terms of why this connects and how this connects to patience. Because patience starts with humility. It starts with faith and trusting God. Judgment typically comes from pride as a form of making ourselves, again, sitting in the judgment seat of the only one who is the true judge. At its heart, true patience lets God be God. But judgment comes from a form of pride that wants to be God itself. And this is where judgment and the waiting are connected in letting God be God, which includes letting God be in control and trusting God to be in control, which can sometimes be two different things. You may know if you've experienced this before in a time of waiting and a time of difficulty, there's a difference between letting God have control and actually trusting God to be in control. Sometimes all we can manage is letting God be in control. It's like a, a power struggle that goes on, and eventually we get so worn out that we give up, we tap out, and we say, okay, God, I'm going to let you be in control of this thing. Trusting God to be in control is a little bit different. It's actually joyfully celebrating the fact that although it's difficult for me to give up control, I'm trusting in the sovereignty, the goodness, and the faithfulness of God so that I can joyfully celebrate the fact that he is in control. That doesn't mean we're always happy about it, but that means we're joyful and content with the fact that we have trusted God to take control of this thing. Now, it's rarely easy to give up control, but trusting God allows us to do it joyfully. And one of the places we see that, of course, is in what James mentions here and what James cites, the life of Job. Now, many of us probably know the story of Job, but even if you do and if you don't, let's review it, because I think this is key to understanding what James is saying here. We're told in the Bible that James was a faithful, or Job, excuse me, was a faithful man who loved God. And God blessed him with a lot of things in life. He had a lot of wealth, he had a lot of land, he had a great family that he loved, and he had his health. He was a healthy guy as well. All the things that, in other words, it was all the things that you want. I mean, James had the full American dream before America was even an idea. He probably even had a little white picket fence around his cattle fields. That's how much he had everything that he would have ever wanted. Now, the book of Job then opens up with Satan going to God and essentially saying, you know, the reason why Job loves you so much is because you've given him everything he could want. I mean, look at all that he has. Of course he loves you because you've given him everything. And Satan's implication, of course, was that Job doesn't really love you. He loves all the stuff you have given him. And so God gives 
Satan the permission to start taking those things away one by one. Now, first, Job loses his fields and his servants, which means he loses all his wealth. Then he loses his children to a tragic incident that takes all of their lives all at once. Then he loses his health as his body is covered in sores from head to toe. And then if all that's not bad enough, his wife, after all this happens, tells him to curse God and die, which might have been tempting at that point for Job, just given all that he had been through. Now, there's all kinds of lessons about suffering and patience and waiting that we can learn from Job's example. And as we read through that book, there's a lot of these lessons. But I think I want to zero in on why I believe James brings it up in this context in James chapter 5. And in, in reference to, of course, the farmer waiting for the precious fruit and all that kind of thing. It's this, that when we face suffering, we face suffering because something is being taken from us. That's what suffering is. It interrupts our plans, the way, that it, the, the way that we wanted things to be. It may affect our emotional well-being. It may be something where our job is taken away, our health is taken away, someone we love may be taken away, and we experience suffering as a result of loss. Now, when we go through times of suffering, especially in difficult times of suffering, most of us, at some point, begin to start to think about, at least I haven't lost everything. In other words, like the way that we cope with this is to think through, well, at least I still have this. Which causes us to be thankful, which is a good thing, right? But it's natural for us to think to ourselves, I've lost this, but at least I still have this. So I've lost my job, but at least I still have my health. Or I'm not healthy, but at least my, my family is healthy. Or I lost this person I love, but at least I still have other people around me who I love. Now, I'm not disparaging that approach. The at leasts get us through some tough times. They're absolutely necessary sometimes, especially when they get us to a place of thankfulness and we can move and cope with uh, deep suffering and deep disappointment. But in the end, the at leasts are not ultimately the solution to suffering. And that's what's going on here. That's why I believe James brings Job into this discussion. Because at some point, Job didn't have any at least left. It was all gone. All he had left at the end of this was the point at the beginning of the story that Satan was testing whether or not he loved and trusted God because it was God or it was nothing. As has been said, you know you really love Jesus when Jesus is all you have left. And that's what Job was experiencing. And notice that James also mentions then the prophets and their patience in the face of suffering. As we look a little closer at this reference, we see the same thing emerge. In a place like Hebrews chapter 11, it tells their story. Many of those whom the, the author of Hebrews is referring to right here were martyred for their faith. And the author of Hebrews tells us what their motivation was. They were thrown in jail, some were cut in half, they were beheaded. Why would they do all of this? The author of Hebrews tells us in, in, in Hebrews eleven thirteen. Verse 16, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, and here is their real homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, Hebrews 11 presents to us the real point that James is trying to make. That as Christians, we are all like farmers awaiting this precious fruit to come, which is this city, this better country, this homeland that Jesus has promised. 
this place in Hebrews defines for us what this crop looks like. It is Jesus and his kingdom, which all illustrates very, one thing that is a very important theological concept that's at the crux of the Christian faith. It's known as the already not yet reality. It means that, and it refers to the kingdom of God, it means that in many degrees, when Jesus came the first time, he brought with him the kingdom of God. When he announces the kingdom of God is at hand, there's an aspect to which the kingdom is already here. There's a degree to which the kingdom is already here. We see it in our own lives. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have experienced salvation. You're a new creation in the spirit. All of those things are evidence of the kingdom of God taking root in the world right now. That's the already part. Of course, there's a whole not yet part where we look at the world and we realize there are places all over the place and there are places even in me where the kingdom of God is not reigning fully. So salvation is available, but it hasn't all been completed yet. And what I like about that phrase, that not yet part, is that it captures really what the farmer is doing here in James chapter 5. Is that he is waiting. It's happening, it's just not yet happening. Does that make sense? There's a yet that's to come, but it's just not yet yet. I love that phrase. And as a result, what it does is it conditions then how we wait. It conditions now in our world how we cultivate patience in our lives. Knowing that this is what God is doing. This is the redemptive plan that he's bringing about. And it will happen. So whether you're waiting in line at Starbucks behind the guy who's ordering eight specialty drinks, or you're waiting for a promotion at work, or you're waiting for your marriage to get better, or you're waiting for your health to return to you, for the treatment to do what it's supposed to do, or you're waiting for the fulfillment of God's kingdom promises. This is the tension of the not yet. But the beauty of it all is that it is yet to come. That the waiting, and because of that, waiting is essential and waiting is fruitful. I want to cover a few things about waiting from a biblical perspective as we close this morning. First of all, waiting is necessary. You know, waiting is a part of life. It's a part of how God has created the world that we live in. It's part of creation and it's a part of God's redemptive plan. We are creatures who live in the creation of time. So by definition, waiting is just a part of everything we do. We can't experience everything at once. We experience one moment at a time. We experience one event. We experience one interaction at any given time. That's how God has designed it. And so by nature, we have to wait. It's a part of life. It's also a part of God's redemptive plan as we wait out the not yet aspect of the already not yet redemption that God is bringing. He brings redemption in degrees of transformation. We see it in ourselves. We see it in other Christ followers. We see it in the world as God moves. We are born again, but then there is transformation that happens in our lives, and it's a process that takes place over an entire lifetime. And as we wait for the full redemption of God's creation, we wait for the judge to return and to finish his judgment work. Secondly, waiting is purposeful. You know, there are things that you will learn about God if you've been in times of suffering or times where you've had to wait even. There are things that you know that you learn about God that you can never learn at any other time in your life. That you couldn't learn without that suffering. That you couldn't learn without that period of waiting. God doesn't waste the waiting. He is there in the waiting, and he is waiting for us to meet him there. And he uses that activity of waiting, and I say activity of waiting because we're supposed to engage in the waiting. Waiting is not passive. It's not necessarily, I mean, there are times for us to be still and know that God is God, but at the same time, the period of waiting 
is a period in which we engage it actively. Paul Miller says this, the waiting that is the essence of faith provides the context of relationship, our relationship with God. Because when you persist in a spiritual vacuum, when you hang in there during ambiguity, you get to know God. We've all experienced, and when you're in a time of waiting, the waiting seems purposeless and sometimes ambiguous. What exactly is happening here? And we say all the time, like, God is sovereign, he's working it out, which is great, but sometimes knowing that God is sovereign may only make it worse in our minds. Because we think to ourselves, if God is sovereign and he can do something about this, why is he not moving and doing something now? There's ambiguity there. There's a spiritual vacuum where we continue to wait. And there's certainly a mystery to why God answers our suffering differently in some cases than others. But what we can know is that God is always there in what feels like a spiritual vacuum. Even in those times where it's ambiguous, it doesn't seem like God is responding. He is there in the waiting with us. And he's teaching us to faithfully trust in him. Third, waiting is an opportunity. Waiting is not meant to be paralyzing and full of non-activity. As I said before, you know, it, it is, there are some times where we are supposed to be still and, and know that, that God is God. And there's no formula for how long it takes for us to kind of be in the waiting and wait and be still versus being active. But as we go closer to Jesus, as we are led by the Spirit, we understand and we feel and we sense when God is moving, we move with him in the waiting. Remember the metaphor of the farmer again to see how this functions. Like the farmer did what he knew what was right. He tilled the soil. He planted the seed. We might assume that when the crop arises, he would make sure that the crop stays healthy by fighting away the pests. In the midst of it, the farmer doesn't know when the rains are going to come. He doesn't know when the crop is going to arise, but he does everything he knows to do while he is waiting so that the crop can grow as strong as possible. We have an active role even in the midst of the waiting. God partners with us in that. And finally, because of all this, waiting is a gift. I think this is the most counterintuitive and countercultural statement about waiting that we can think about, that waiting itself is a gift. Because we do, again, we do so many things in life so that we don't have to wait. We believe that time is a gift, and as we saw that meme earlier, patience is not a virtue, it's a waste of time. But time and how we handle it is actually a stewardship. And it's more about what we do with the time that we have. Time spent with God, time learning from God is not wasted time. In fact, it's the best use of time. I was thinking about this uh, earlier this week. You know, from time to time, Facebook will give you one of your memories that, of a picture that you took like a long time ago. And on St. Patrick's Day, a, a memory of our girls came up that we took eight years ago. And I looked at them and they were still like little babies and thinking to myself, like it reminded me of the time when they were kids and you know how if you're a parent, they go through this process where they're in diapers and you're so, you're so anxious for them to get out of diapers so you don't have to change diapers anymore. That you just like want them to move as quickly as possible. You want time to move as quickly as possible so they can be potty trained. And then you want them to be walking because you want them to like stop crawling on the ground. And then you want them to start talking so you can actually start to engage with them and that kind of thing. And you get such in a hurry over all these periods of time that you get to a place where we are now where it's like, man, I wish we could just go back to those days just for one day, Right? I don't want to change a ton of, but just for one day, right? I could put up with the changing of diapers just to be back in that place. And what we realize is that time moves so quickly, and in the moment, it, is so, it can often be so difficult to be patient with the moment because we are so focused on what is the next thing and when is it coming. 
but patience or waiting itself is a gift. Because patience is more than a virtue, it's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's a part of the character of God. God is often called patient or long-suffering in Scripture, but of course the place that we see the best of God's patience is in the Gospel of Jesus. This is how God has shown us his patience in the Gospel. In Romans 5, we are told that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, that phrase, at the right time, could mean a couple of things. It could mean right when, we were necess- right when it was needed, right when we were weak, as that verse says. But it also means the time, actually, according to God's plan in history, when he decided to send Jesus. And I've wondered this before. Uh, I don't know if you've wondered this before, but why is it that God sent Jesus at the time that he did in history? Right? Why did the Father send the Son at that time in history? Height of the Roman Empire, all those things. Why not a couple generations before when Israel was in exile? Why not a little bit later? Why not now, right? How great would it be to have Jesus physically with us in this generation? What would Jesus do with social media? I mean, he'd have a YouTube channel, all these things. but He could get his message and his ministry out in some amazing ways. And so, what, it was at the right time, though, that God showed his patience, and he still does. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 15 says, through 15 says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You know, as I read something like this, I think to myself, it's kind of a crazy thing to note note, and to realize that the sovereign, all-knowing, and all-powerful God can be said to be patient. I mean, think about it. God can do anything, whatever he wants at any time, and yet he chooses to be patient. If I was, if I was, omnipotent and all-powerful like there's no chance I'm waiting for anything but God chooses to be patient and the reason that he does is because he's joined himself in relationship to us and he becomes patient and long-suffering towards us this is a part of his love towards us if God can be patient so can we it's an aspect of his character in us Close by telling you this story. Yesterday, I have to tell you this story because it's a part of how this happens. We might ask ourselves, how exactly is patience cultivated in our lives? I was at a wedding yesterday. It was a beautiful wedding. Um, Happened to be in in the backyard of this beautiful, wonderful house. And um, as part of what they were doing, it was like around lunchtime, and so they were providing lunch for us, and so they had a crepe truck out in the front yard where we would get our lunch after the ceremony. And when I say crepe truck, I'm not talking about the little ones that you get at IHOP for like $1.99 or whatever. These, are, these crepes are the biggest crepes I've ever seen. Think about like a Chipotle burrito, right? That's what these crepes look like. They filled out an entire plate. And as you're getting to a place where it's like noon and that kind of thing, they started releasing people by table to go get their crepes in the front. 
and, and to bring it back to your seat in the back. And I was at seat 11, that, or chair, I should say table 11. And so I'm, I'm hanging out, I'm waiting for all this stuff, we're all just kind of sitting around and talking, I'm talking to some friends that are over at table 10, right? Now, before you assume that I was somehow trying to cut the line on purpose, I'm not that smart, don't give me that much credit. I just happened to be talking to some people at table 10. And it came for table 10 to be released. And at the time, I was just thinking to myself, man, I'm really hungry, you know? I could just slip out with table 10 and go get in line. I mean, I was table 11, I was coming next anyway, right? And so I start walking, and I'm thankful for the accountability of some brothers and sisters who booed me from table 11 as I was walking by their table, audibly booing, very loudly booing me. Um, but that didn't deter me. I was on my way to get my crepes. I was really, really hungry at that point. So we get in line, and we order, and they tell us, okay, it's going to be about 15 minutes. And for most people, it was actually 15 minutes for their crepes. For me and my wife, not so much. Uh, it was uh, just to over an hour is what it eventually took us to get our crepes. And during that hour, I saw tables come behind me. They would go up. They would order their crepes. They would get their crepes, and they would walk away. Table after table, table 11, table 12, table 13. And we're just standing there waiting for our crepes to come. And I'm telling you, and I'm sitting there, and the Lord is reminding me, remember you're preaching about patience tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, it was out of impatience that, of course, I cut the line. And the Lord was teaching me a little lesson about patience. Now, you may notice that I'm a little bit more sunburned this morning. This is from standing in the sun for an hour waiting for crepes at a crepe truck in the sun. And so I was not only hungry, but I was getting sunburned, and I was sweating and frustrated. And I can't tell you, I didn't say anything, but I can tell you the things that were going on in my mind. As I saw people walking back with their crepes, you know how many times I just wanted to go like that and flip over the plate? Just being honest with you. But I restrained. And I seriously was sitting there thinking to myself, Lord, I know that you're teaching me something in this. It's a small lesson, but it was an important one. After an hour, the guy who was running the truck looked at us and said, hey, you guys have been standing here a while. Can you give us your name? We had to give, us our, give it the name and the order again so that he said, oh, well, we'll make sure it's the next order that comes off. And so sure enough, after a couple more, we finally got our, our crepes. And he handed it to us, and he gave us an extra crepe for waiting so long. He said, I know you've been waiting for long. I'm so sorry. And he said to us, thank you for your patience. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, if you only knew what was going on in my mind and in my heart, you would not have thanked me for that, but I appreciate it. It was an aspect of God's grace being shined through my life, even though I was fighting every, uh, every ounce against what he was doing. But I, I look at that, and I realize that God was cultivating Something in me. I'll remember that. This funny little crepe story. I'll remember that and realize that, yes, there is a reason why we are being transformed into the image of Christ is to display his glory to the world. And in some ways, to bring a little bit more of the kingdom to this planet, to this reality. As God's people, we're called to be patient because he is patient. What are you waiting for right now? What do you need to give over to God in the waiting so that he can produce patience in you so that you can receive patience as a gift because God's best is always worth waiting for let's pray Lord we thank you this morning for the gift of patience um, I, as I said earlier I don't I don't of course want to just indiscriminately pray for patience for everyone because not everyone's comfortable with that but Lord we know that it's a gift that you have 
given to us. And so I pray that you would help us by your spirit to see the blessing that patience is in our lives. And whether we're in the waiting right now, whether we're suffering right now and going through something that is a trial or a difficulty, and we may feel like, Lord, I I don't know what this ambiguity is all about. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of praying this prayer over and over again and not seeing anything move around me. I pray you would open up our eyes of faith to see you with us in the waiting, that we would realize that waiting is an opportunity that you use. You don't waste it. You don't waste any of our moments. You don't waste any of our time, Lord. You were there with us in the waiting. Sometimes we can't see it because we can't see it the way that you see things, but Lord, we ask that you would enlarge in our perspective, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see where you are, that we would be sensitive to the moving of your spirit to know when it is good to be still and to rest and to know when it is good to actively wait in those moments, to seek you and to see where you are so that we might draw closer to you. We thank you for, Lord, the grace that you give us that allows us to wrestle with these things. We thank you for the fact that, above all, you have been patient and you continue to be patient with us. You are long-suffering because you love us. You are long-suffering as a measure of your grace and mercy in our lives, and we thank you for that. We are appreciative of it, Lord. I pray we would never lose sight of that. And because of that, it would be so appealing to us that it would draw us closer to you, that we might be changed to be more like Jesus that we might be people who might be known as patient, long-suffering, and compassionate people because that's who our Lord is. We pray this in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Of course, when we talk about active waiting, one of the things that we do in the active waiting is praying. We seek God, and so we are, uh, we are a church that is happy and, 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 and uh, joyful to be able to pray with you over anything that you have going on in your lives. And so we have prayer request cards that are located at the table as you leave here this morning. We'd encourage you, if there's something that you would like to join with or you would like us to join with you in prayer about, write it on one of those prayer cards and drop it in one of the offering uh, stands as you leave. We have a staff who prays over those things every week. We have a prayer team and also our elder team. And we consider it a joy and an opportunity, again, to join with you in prayer as we wait to see God work and God answer prayer through those times. We're going to be talking about prayer next week as we close out the book of James. And this is certainly one of those things uh, that we actively engage in as we wait, as we wait to see how God moves. So thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for joining us online as well. Hope you all have a great week. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.